Andy, welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast. Uh, today, another episode about uh, B2B uh, commerce. Our last guest and most likely regular guest was um, um, Andrew Mayhorn, who is also part of the e-commerce industry now for 20 years, uh, working for Intershop uh, in the US and for Elastic Pass now, helping Spriker expanding our market Uh, um, our market share in the US. Uh, and today uh, we have another legend from the e-commerce uh, industry as a guest, uh, um, um, Andy. So um, most people won't know your, uh, your current uh, business, Paradigm B2B, because it's a very specialized uh, boutique. Uh, can you give us a, a broader, uh, a broader um, um, summary about Uh, what makes you a legend in the B2B commerce market in the, in the US? Well, I don't know if it makes me a legend, but I'll take that as a compliment. So I started Paradigm B2B uh, back in late 2017. And I did so because I saw an opening and an opportunity. So uh, when I was at Forge, I did a lot of work for enterprises, mostly billion dollar plus companies, because those tend to be the the Forrester, Gartner, IDC kind of clients. And what I kept running across, though, was mid-market companies, companies of, you know, tremendous size. They're just not, not billion-dollar companies, but 500 to 500 million dollars or 50 to 500 million dollars in total revenue, oftentimes divisions of larger companies. And what I saw was that they had the same problems and issues of the enterprise companies, but they had the budget of a small business. And so I thought, well, why is it that nobody is serving this market? Why is it underserved? And what I discovered was that there just wasn't anybody out there who was targeting uh, research and advice at this particular group. Oftentimes what ended up happening is the budget tended to win the discussion. And so they ended up using resources that small businesses had, but that wasn't really appropriate. Because when you're a $500 million company, you can't be acting like you're a three-person company selling stuff out of your basement and using the resources to advise your direction and strategy based on that. So started Paradigm to really serve the mid-market. Um, the same you know, qualities of research, advice, et cetera. And I think I had an advantage in that some of the old other companies, you know, Forrester's when I used to work for, they have a different model where it's a sales-driven model. And And you know, there's a lot of uh, research, there's a lot of resources that go into subsidizing the sales model. Well, if I'm doing the sales and I can scale myself, which has been really the issue, then I can actually service, not just really the micro-sized companies, but companies with 100 to $500 million in revenue are plenty large enough uh, to justify paying for my fees. So that's why I started uh, Paradigm back in 2017 was to really service the mid-market. This description uh, was also true for the B2C market. So also in B2C market, there's a lot of companies uh, between 50 to 500 million not able to afford a Gartner or Forrester uh, license, but you focused on, on B2B. So uh, uh, where does this come from? So uh, is your father working in a construction business or is this kind of a family rate, rated thing? So it's, uh, was it uh, just by accident? So how did those, this B2B scope evolved? Well, given the fact that my father was in the insurance industry and my mother was a school teacher, neither one of those qualify as B2B. So 
No, I, I fell into it. Like most things we do in life, you know, nobody really has a plan for much of what they do. They have a direction, perhaps, maybe a little strategy here and there. And it's constantly iterating. And then they wake up one day and they're doing something hopefully they enjoy, but something they didn't expect to do. So I was, it was 2011. I was working at Forrester. I was covering B2C. That was my first role at Forrester. In fact, I was sort of mentoring under uh, Citrina Mulperu, uh, who's now since been, because of the married name now, which is Kodali. But uh, I mentored under Su uh, Sutrita, who is really one of the great minds in, in the analyst space. No matter what dimension of you're in, she covers B2C, but truly one of the best. And I was lucky to be able to learn from her. I think it was maybe late 2011, early 2012, when somebody at Forrester approached me and said, hey, you know, we've got 17 analysts covering B2C. Uh, we have no analysts covering B2B. Would you be interested in taking a look at that? And I thought at the time, either this is really, a, a, I've said this before, an idiot move or a genius move. I wasn't quite sure which one it was. So I just decided, to, to explore it. I put my toes in the water. I, I sought out some clients. In fact, one of my first clients was SAP. And before it was SAP, in fact, one was Hybris still. And so Hybris invited me to go give a presentation <clears throat> and you know nobody was there. And it wasn't because of me. It's just that nobody was into it at that point. And I remember they even felt bad about it. Uh, and I said, don't worry about it. We're just in the early stages here. And about two years later, they were doing uh, what became game plan. And they had hundreds and hundreds of people there. So it was just the early end of this, but yeah, it was late 2011, early 2012. I pivoted from B2C to B2B. And what I discovered was nobody else was covering it. Not only was nobody at Forrester covering B2C e-commerce or B2B e-commerce, I should say, but nobody at Gartner, IDC or anywhere was covering it. So for about two years, I was the only person in the world who was covering B2B e-commerce. Because of that, I was able to create a lot of the seminal research in the space. I was the first one to size the market. Uh, I was the first one to uh, produce like behavioral research around it, uh, self-reported survey research. It was, the, it was the only one who did. I wrote Death of a B2B Salesman. Nobody had, had contemplated really doing that. And then around 2015, 2016, the other research houses realized that if my numbers would be believed, and I think at this point they were, you know, it's more than twice the size of B2C. And so I think they started to realize maybe they're too overweighted on the B2C side of things and it's time to start covering B2B. But even to this day, there aren't many people who are covering B2B e-commerce. I have an heir parent at, um, at Forrester who does, Joe Sisman, he's very good. Uh, there are folks at IDC but they still tend to lop them all together because they look at it more from a technology perspective. And one thing I take great pride in is I see B2B e-commerce, not from a technology uh, space, but from a business perspective. And the technology follows the business. So whenever I'm consulting with uh, vendors, and I certainly I've talked to Spryker about this before, when I'm asked the question, what you know, technology should we be developing? What direction should we be heading? And should we go headless or full stack or you know, microservices-based architectures, et cetera? My answer is always the same. What's the business tell you? What are people buying and why are they using it the way they're using it? So I've never been a big believer. I know this burst the bubble for many technology vendors. Never been a big believer. 
in uh, the technology being the most important quality here. Now, a lot of technology companies don't necessarily like that I say that, but to me, technology is, is the slave here, not the master. It's the market that's the master. And you know, if you look at companies like Amazon, what technology platform is Amazon using to power its e-commerce capabilities? I ask that question to companies all the time. And the answer is they don't know because it doesn't matter. You know, Amazon runs a business the way they run their business and they use their technology, which happens to be world-class in many cases. But again, the technology doesn't matter. It's the experience that matters. I disagree here, but we will come to the technology part a little bit later. Uh, maybe as uh, you just said, you're were sizing the market. So I remember a lot of statistics saying the B2B market is 10 times bigger also in e-commerce uh, e uh, than the B2C market. Um, and uh, that might be even true because in B2B, it's easy to create a billion dollar market because if you have like three companies and every company is just doing a tiny bit on a machine and selling the whole machine for uh, 0.5% uh, uh, markup to the next company. So it creates like a gigantic ecosystem. Um, but what does it mean like in, uh, uh, in, in technology revenues in, in B2B? When you're, you were a gardener, you're now... Uh, you're, you have now a decent view um, in the B2B industry. So um, how much software money is made in B2B versus B2C? So I think it's still the Amazons, the Adidas, the Nike uh, um, uh, paying a lot of licenses to software vendor and not so much the B2B uh, industry. There might be big chunks of revenue, uh, usually... Um, usually funneled through uh, back-end SAP uh, Microsoft systems, so not the e-commerce we would uh, perceive as the real e-commerce. Um, but is there really um, a big chunk of the software revenue made in, B2, in the B2B area? Yeah, so I never sized that part of the market. It was sized by another person at Forrester after I left. And I believe they put the number a couple of years ago at somewhere around eight to $10 billion globally that would be spent on e-commerce technology to power e-commerce sites. But you know the, the problem with that is how do you measure that? Uh, it doesn't include gross merchandise volume. It's just what companies would pay in terms of a license, which doesn't really even exist anymore because many vendors, as you know, charge based on performance. And so it's a GMV-based calculation mm. or an orders-based calculation. So it's not exactly clear, you know, what an average contract value would be. So I don't really trust those numbers myself. And I'm not sure it's really an issue because I think everybody knows, and you run a software company, so clearly you believe this, that there's tens of billions of dollars to be made selling software to B2B companies. And if you look at a company like a Shopify, for example, which is overwhelmingly B2C, who would have ever thought their market would be as large as it is? I mean, the company's worth what, 100, 200, 300 billion dollars now? I remember 100 plus be. for sure, yes. So. I remember when I, I talked to them several years ago, very early on, and they were essentially two guys and a dog in a garage, quite literally. And uh, you know, they had this idea about what they wanted to do. And I remember thinking at the time, it wasn't very differentiated, except in one important way. And they just managed to leverage this to the hilt. And it was the fact, they, the way they priced their product. It was a, um, 
you know, they took a percentage of the revenue as a, a revenue share model for small businesses. The technology wasn't new. The, the space wasn't new. The need wasn't new. But what was new was they would say, you know, look, we will only make money if you make money. And they gave these templates out for people to use. It was a really smart approach because it was low risk for people to get involved. And, but again, the technology wasn't extraordinary. It still isn't, to be honest. It's fairly basic, but they do something very basic very well. Actually, they democratized what was only available for enterprise companies like 20 years ago that could afford Hybris, Intershop, Oracle, ATG. That's now available for the small mom and pop store on a revenue share model, which is really cool. So there's no big upfront costs um, involved. So you, you're not 100% sure how big the... Um, the I, I agree the revenue potential um, is big, but I'm not sure that it's 10 times bigger than the B2C Uh, uh, markets. Uh, at, at, at least I don't have an uh, um, I don't have data data that um, that would prove that. But let's uh, let's go back to your um, Amazon statement for a second. Um, you say or you said the technology didn't matter. It's all about the experience. But from your point of view, what is actually responsible or Why is experience so much better compared to other B2C vendors in that case? We, we, will, we can uh, deep dive into the B2B experience uh, later. So, but why is the experience on Amazon so much better compared to uh, uh, the competition? Well, it's a complicated question for which it requires sort of a complicated answer. And I'll give you the simplest answer I can give you. It really depends on whether you're buying or selling on Amazon. The experiences are different. It depends on whether you're a B2B company or a B2C company or a B2B to B or B2B to C company. There are differences in approach here, but fundamentally, the reason I've found consistently why Amazon's experience tends to be generally better than others out there. And by the way, it's not the best at everything. I mean, there are companies that do different parts of the experience, different parts of the journey better than Amazon does, but why are they lauded? for having the experience they have. Interestingly enough, it's not because Amazon does uh, mega innovation. It isn't like they launch these whole new, you know, functionality sets that just blow people away when they see it. You know, it's not like there are major point releases that they put out there that are game changing. Occasionally they'll put out something new and they tend to do so quietly like Alexa or something else, but My humble opinion, and, and they've talked about this in the past, the real reason why Amazon does so well is because they remove bits of friction along the way. So picture it this way, you know, you're quite familiar being German and living in Germany with the Autobahn. Imagine if there were little pebbles and little holes on the Autobahn everywhere. Now, if you're driving over the, you know, slowly, you have a different experience if you're driving quickly, but, you know, you don't you don't notice these things until you're trying to do something like drive quickly, right? And what Amazon has done is said, our innovation is to remove all the little impediments along the way, get the pebbles out of the way, smooth the surface. That's the innovation. And it turns out they fractionalize the innovation. They'll just say, look, we're going to cut something from five steps down to three steps, which doesn't sound like, putting a person on the moon. But if you do that in 
a hundred or a thousand or a million different places, collectively that innovation produces the experience we all have. So that is a mindset, that is uh, a way of thinking. And frankly, they have the data to be able to do this, which is something else I hope we get a chance to talk about. But wouldn't you agree that they just adapt faster and better to customer needs and market changes than other? Because what you're describing, yes, it might have been like a kind of innovative approach uh, 20 years ago, but at least like 10 years ago when Amazon was already part of the biggest business uh, studies uh, you could get in, most companies understood it. So even Sears understood it like 10 years ago. But they never were able to switch into that mode, um, innovate every day, innovate on small uh, um, uh, increments. So um, they, Sears, for example, or even some B2B companies, they did not have the right org chart to do it. But um, most likely they never had like the technology setup that really helped them to transport the ideas that are coming from the business side into a real customer experience, because that's what I'm seeing in a lot of companies, not only B2C companies, especially B2B companies. So people are not smarter at Amazon or at Mano Mano or at Zalando or whatever e-commerce companies you, uh, you could name. So in the other businesses, in the traditional businesses, the ideas are at least as good as the ideas in the, in the bigger e-commerce companies. But they don't have the structure, they don't have the technology, they don't have the release Uh, infrastructure to bring it to the customer. And this is fairly related to technology from my point of view. If you're running on a technology mindset and technological infrastructure that was built for, okay, let's, let's just build it and then let's just maintain it, you will never be able to catch up. And, and this is a technology-related disadvantage from my point of view. So there is a Yes, technology matters uh, uh, from my point of uh, from my point of view. Wouldn't you agree here? Well, I, I would disagree slightly on this one because, as I said earlier, I think technology is the slave, not the master. And I often find technology answers the question of how you do something, not why you do something. And what you mentioned earlier about Amazon, I think you were. You were dancing around the real issue. The reason why Amazon does these things so well, the reason why they have the technology infrastructure, the reason why they have the org chart, the reason why they do these things operationally the way they do is because it's a culture. It's a culture that's obsessed with customers. And, you know, companies talk about this ad infinitum. They talk about being obsessed with clients. But then when you get right down to the brass tacks and you ask them, When you made this decision about this particular fe feature or function, what was that decision based on? More often than not, it's not based on the customer. More often than not, it's based on something they wanted to do internally that fit with their organizational chart or with their release pattern because it was something that uh, they could slide into a feature release. So <laughs> it's it obsession with customer centrality is not a relative position. It's an absolute position. Either you're dedicated to it or you're not. I, I agree. Amazon I, is 100% dedicated. I'll bet you if Amazon uh, was to be as obsessed with customers and it required no technology, they would not be a technology company. 
So they aren't a technology company because they can be a technology company. They're a technology company because it enables them to deliver a customer experience in a completely differentiated way. That's why they care about technology, not because technology is an end in and of itself. I agree. And they don't care for the why anymore. They don't even care for the what anymore. So what you're, uh, you're challenging the older companies saying, okay, you decided for option A versus option B. Uh, and you cannot explain why companies with a, a decent delivery infrastructure like, like Amazon or like even like modern Walmart e-commerce infrastructure, they only focus on the how. So how can we break this big milestone down into like smaller increments? How can we make it faster? How can we make it more data-driven? This is all technology uh, related. So uh, I would turn this argument around and saying, you cannot be a customer access company uh, if you're not technology driven. Uh, because there, how, how can it be? Because every idea we would now develop in a B2B, let's say there's a B2B client. We are now in a Granger workshop developing new B2B cool e-commerce ideas. 99% of these ideas would require um, software development. It's essentially software projects. Whereas like 20 years ago, it would have been branding projects, maybe delivery infrastructure projects, building new warehouses. Now it's all about software being client focused means to become a software company, at least for uh, for a decent part, maybe not as big as a software company you would need to be today in B2C, but also B2B Uh, 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 leads this uh, uh, leads this way, um, which might be a good uh, bridge actually into the core topic. We uh, we got a little bit defocused with the Amazon uh, with the Amazon topic. So um, uh, you said one of your first clients at Forrester was Hybris, and I uh, before the podcast I sent you a couple of questions. I said, okay, um, maybe you can describe how those like different vendor generations uh, um, actually um, placed themselves over the last like 10, 15 years, because in Our worldview and our view is obviously biased uh, because we are part of this kind of uh, a vendor versus vendor game. We see like the older generation was was built for the uh, for the first e-commerce problem. Please, dear vendor, build an infrastructure that helps me getting my my products out of the ERP into the internet. And then the second generation, which is actually Hybris Intershop demand, we are help them to build like a new media infrastructure where the marketing team had their own uh, product data engine, their own auto management system. And there was kind of this microservice circus around for a couple of years. And now like the next generation where uh, uh, we are part of uh, this kind of headless uh, package business capabilities uh, thing is coming with a very different architectural approach, but solving also a different problem. It's not about like building an online shop anymore. It's about becoming a little bit technology. Uh, um, company. So ha have you seen this kind of development from an analyst perspective or have you perceived it in a very different way? Well, you know, going back, it, software was software. It was on-premise, something that people came on site, they installed, you know, it was implemented by a systems integrator, partner. You know, the rule of thumb was that it cost between five and 15 times the license price to implement a software package. So if you wanted to, you know, back in the day, let's say do a Hybris install, it might cost you a million dollars for the software license and five to $15 million dollars to complete the process of implementing it. Well, let's take the, the middle point there. That would be a $10 million dollar implementation plus the million dollar license, plus it would take three years. So that was a three year 
$11 million implementation. At the end of that three years, what did you have? Ostensibly, you had a world-class, customized, configured system that can allow you to do anything. That's true to some extent. But what you also had was a product that was three years old um, and was heavily monolithic and uh, difficult to iterate on. And, and that's what kind of gave rise to this idea of, is there, isn't there a better way to do this than to spend $11 million in three years? Especially when companies were saying things like, I wanna get up and running quickly, I want to make some mistakes. I want the business case to be the, the, the actual site as opposed to hiring people to spend a year putting together a business case, guessing what might happen. That was dispensed with about five or six years ago. I did that in my early days at Forrester. I think all analysts did. We'd advise people. They'd ask us for comparables. We'd give them numbers. They'd put together a spreadsheet. They'd think about what kind of money they could make up. They had all these assumptions built into it. And it's okay, if we do this right on, in a five, 10, 15 year fashion, we should be generating this amount of revenue and this amount of profit. And they said, we justified this because we're gonna spend $11 million building the system. So we need to know how much revenue and profit it's gonna generate. The only problem with that was that was taking far too long. The assumptions were wildly inaccurate. And so what people discovered was, hey, you know, the, the, the best way to determine success is to succeed. And uh, there's an old saying, nothing succeeds like success. And so if you want to see what the business case is going to be like for digital, the best way to do it is to build a site and actually figure it out. So that gave rise to this whole notion of why do we need to spend $11 million and wait three years? Why can't we can we use something that even has gone to the other extreme of being throwaway? Can we just throw something up there, see what kind of response we get, then build our model, then use that as a more accurate version to create a longer term solution? There are still companies that do this. I actually advise companies to do this. But what has actually happened is the companies that had the monoliths, the three year $11 million solutions, they discovered they had to um, make their product not quite as monolithic. And so that's where Headless came from, that's where microservices came from. There are a lot of other things that intersected with that, but fundamentally it's driven by B2B technology buyers saying, I don't wanna wait three years. I don't wanna spend $11 million to find out what I can find out much quicker by actually building a, um, you know, a, 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 a dummy site in a way and running it like a reference store and then seeing what kind of conversion rates we get and then using that. So when people started doing that, what they found was they were getting such accurate numbers and having such success that they were almost sticking with that original model and then find, forgot how do we scale this thing over time? So it, it shifted from one extreme to the other. It was wait three years and pay $11 million and then there's gonna be a big payoff, hopefully, fingers crossed, to, hey, let's just throw up a site using Shopify Let's see what we get, and then we'll try and scale it from there. It, the center of gravity has shifted from the monolithic systems to the, the more scalable or to the faster time to market and less expensive, in many cases, cloud-based systems, which is actually another uh, trend that intersected with that. Cloud enabled a lot of this 
try before you buy, um, you know, start small environment. But um, it, from my point of view, like the, um, the approach you've described with like a three-year project, $11 million, that worked out well 20 years ago. Uh, because like 20 years ago, in the, especially in the B2C industry, we will uh, come in a minute to the, to the B2B uh, um, view. And only 10 to 12 years ago, when like the first kind of Magento was like the front runner for Shopify, so Magento democratized like the market uh, first. And uh, it was like the basis for ASOS, for Zalando, for, for multi-billion dollar businesses now. And they show that, okay, it's all about like, progress, moving faster, adapting faster, doing like 10 releases per day instead of like 10 releases per decade, which was the case with a, with a bigger monolith. But initially it worked out. So for, especially from a B2C perspective in Europe, um, the cases that decided for this like three year, four year, five years project invested lots of money, uh, but being the first in their industry that worked. Some of those business cases actually uh, uh, worked out. From my perspective, that must have been the case for B2B even later. So even if you would have started in such a project in, in, in B2B in 2012, for example, a, a big multi-million dollar project with a monolithic infrastructure because you've in B2B, you still tended even more to the ERP uh, vendor because you were in a production-heavy, logistic-heavy industry. So that's where usually those ERP companies are usually um, very strong. So 10 years ago, those, this must have been the right approach. Or would you say, no, it was even outdated uh, uh, 10 years ago? I don't think in retrospect, it was ever a great idea. It was the only option though. Mm. You know, we look back in our lives and say, you know, that, that toy I had when I was a kid, that car we had, that house we lived in, those all worked out. Well, maybe they did at the time, but in retrospect, You look at it and think, wait a minute, that car didn't have seatbelts. It didn't have anti-lock brakes. Uh, it didn't have a camera system on it. How in the world could you drive a car that unsafe now, right? So, but it was the only alternative. And so we can get into a philosophical discussion about absolute versus relative comparisons. But my sense is that was the system that served everybody's interest at the time. It served the interest of the software companies and they, and they basically structure themselves around that. It was big game hunting, right? They would go get a multi-million dollar contract and that was what they were looking for. They valued that more highly than they did uh, like, you know, as a CapEx idea as opposed to an operating expense idea. I remember like 2012, 2013, having discussions with companies, uh, software companies who were contemplating the transition from on-premise software to the cloud. And every one of them to a person would tell me that uh, their more profitable model to them was the on-premise one because they'd rather have a million dollars today than you know, say $100,000 over the course of every month for a year. They'd rather have the money up front. And, and I said, well, yeah, but if you think about the lifetime value here of this, it, it wasn't even close that the OpEx cloud-based model monthly subscription model was far superior. But I look at this in hindsight and say, why was I even having arguments with people about this? It was just simple math. They came at it from a particular perspective. It was the one they'd always come at it from and they structured their entire company around it. The sales organization, the customer service organization, the development cycles. Remember when we used to have these 
once a year, twice a year point releases. You know, I did this evaluation, as you know, called the Paradigm B2B Combine. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's much better than the magic quarter and I highly recommend to all listeners here. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> But most of the companies I evaluate don't have numbers associated with their releases anymore. Yeah. It used to be, you know, something 4.0 or 2.0 or whatever. Most of them are just commerce cloud and that's it because they're constantly evolving this thing. So, you know, I say, be careful in hindsight, we look at and say it worked. I think if there'd been an alternative back then, if the cloud had existed, if uh, if companies could have done OPEX like budgeting, I think on both sides of the fence, both the vendors and the buyers, it would have worked out much better because the idea behind an OPEX budget or a monthly subscription that grows as you grow, this is what Demandware did, is it grows with you. It goes up, it goes down. Whereas if you make an investment upfront in a multi-million dollar piece of software and it doesn't work out, you can't give it back. You know, it's a sunk cost at that point. So to me, it is, it is a vastly superior way of doing it uh, on multiple levels. And we got a whole podcast about just comparing those two options. But yeah, I would challenge the idea that it, that it worked. I think it was the best alternative at the time. Oh, okay. In hindsight, it, it is not as good a model as the ones that exist today. And by the way, we might be saying the same thing about today's models in 10 or 15 years, when somebody comes up with an even better model, we'll look back on it and say, hey, it worked. Well, maybe it did, but what do you say to companies that you know can't make it work? They go out of business. Was that because of the platform they used? Was it because of the model they used? Or was it because they had a bad business? It's hard to say. It's yeah. I think we would need to uh, analyze it case by case. It, I I don't think that's like a general uh, rule here. Uh, but uh, as you said, there were a lot of companies that um, uh, that structured their software like in in versions. One point four. I think the the most uh, popular number in this market is one point nine, which was like the latest Magento version before it went. Uh, uh, it went with uh, two point oh. Um, but even like the older vendors um, that started 20 years ago, uh, if you today would uh, uh, were going to their website or compared with the Spryker website or the Vtex website or Miracle website, they all use the same terms, um, headless, microservice, cloud native. Some even claim they invented terms like headless or so. It's, it's like... It's like it's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a cancer of our industry that like it's like just... It's like loud crying out words, uh, uh, playing like bullshit bingo, which is then echoed by the analysts actually, because some of them are setting those words. So it's kind of a it's a cycle nobody can nobody can stop. So how do you navigate through this? So how do you find out what kind of software approach might work better for company A versus company B? You you've been now you've been now in this industry like for ten years, and you obviously. Um, discover uh, uh, bullshit <laughs> when 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 you see it, but but how do you navigate it? It's 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 even like for experts like you or I, I would uh, say even I'm expert in the market because I'm long enough here. Sometimes it's very hard to find out. So what's the USP? What are they doing? It's even hard to differentiate today between like commerce vendors and CM vendors <laughs> because they both claim it's essentially the same. It's just experience. So how how do you do it? 
Yes, I have a couple of ways I approach this. One is with all the vendors, and I've I've even done this with you guys in the past when you briefed me. I say that there's a the key to a great briefing with me. I can't speak for other analysts, but this has worked for me for 10 years. Is I usually ask three questions. What do you do in jargon-free language? I don't want to hear a bunch of acronyms. I want to hear what do you actually do? And you'd be surprised, people struggle with that. They have to recalibrate their brains because they speak in acronyms. And so, you know, I'm not saying you have to, you know, define out all the words. I just don't want to hear, you know, we have a CPQ that's PIM infused with a CRM system that connects to our ERP. What does that mean? So I feel like I'm the translator for buyers. So mm-hmm. I asked that question, jargon for language, what is it? Number two is how are you better, different, unique? Because it's not good enough to say we've got this great solution. How are you better, different, unique? There's, I follow about 30 companies in the B2B commerce space. The 31st company, if it isn't differentiated, it's going to get swallowed up in the noise, as you mentioned early on. And then the last thing is, who do you compete with? I asked this question because I've been surprised before when people will give me a good answer, number one. An even better answer, number two. So I know what they do. I know how they're different and unique. And the number three is they give me, they throw a curveball to me and, and define competitors that I would not see them competing with. So to me, it doesn't happen very often, but all three of those things should align. If you do that with a vendor and you can get straight answers to those three questions, then you can actually communicate that to other people. The jargon-free part is really, really critical because there are a lot of technology buyers out there who are not as well educated. They don't follow, you know, the buzzword bingo, like you mentioned. They aren't into the acronyms. They, they know enough to be dangerous, but their overarching goal here is to build an experience and use the technology platform to do that. And they want to make sure that's cost effective and it, and it helps them differentiate against their competitors. So on that side of the equation with the buyers of technology, The approach I've always taken is, what are you hoping to accomplish here? And I often use the analogy of, you know, buying a technology platform is like buying a car. And if you're going to go drag racing in that car, you probably don't want to buy a minivan. And if you're going to take the kids to and from school every day in the safest possible way you can, then you probably don't want a Maserati. And but a Maserati and a minivan both have wheels. They both have an engine. They're, they're both capable of transporting you from point A to point B, but they do so for different reasons. And so to me, this is where I go with buyers of technology to begin with. And what's interesting is many of them just think about these technology platforms, just like when sometimes when you buy a car, you know, I just need something to get me from point A to point B. I don't care what it is. Well, you're going to care pretty soon if you've got kids in the car and the no, there's no car seat or if the car sits so low to the ground that it makes it dangerous. So it does require a little thinking here. And this is why I find companies struggle the most is they think in the eternal present. We need to buy a platform to deliver commerce right now. Well, by the time you actually implement this thing, by the time you know, you've got it feeling the way you want it to feel. It's going to be months, maybe years. And so you need to be extrapolating to the future. What is this? What do I need a year or two or three years from now and work my way backwards? Every client I've ever done that exercise with has come to a different conclusion when they start in the future and work their way back to the present versus starting in the present and working their way to the future. It seems like a semantical difference. It's not. 
It is a substantively different discussion. So what I find is when I work with clients who are looking at buying technology platforms, they have to start first with what kind of customers they want to serve and how do they want to be different? Because if you can't answer that question as, as a seller, then no technology platform in the world is going to make your business model work. I agree. Let's focus. Uh, let's focus on the jargon-free needs for the B2B customers, and and maybe you need to change your Maserati example because last year Maserati uh, uh, launched the Maserati Levante, which is their SUV slash minivan <laughs> option, <laughs> where you can take your kids uh, safe to and from school. So, but uh, in a jargon-free way for uh, for B2B buyers, I heard you um, talking about it in another podcast, uh, saying that the. Uh, requirements even in B2B uh, are changing because a lot of B2B companies evolved through time. Uh, um, one example you gave was um, like a couple of years ago, you usually um, as a B2B buyer, uh, you needed to register on a website to see the catalog or to see even prices, uh, which is not necessary anymore. I, I do see it different. I see in 80% of the B2B company, uh, B2B websites uh, uh, I'm looking at, you still need to apply for become a customer, which is ridiculous from a customer uh, perspective. So, but uh, maybe focusing on the US market in a jargon-free uh, way for companies that know what their USP is, what are they looking for? What are they searching for in terms of a technology uh, um, platform kind of way? Well, funny thing is I'm going to use some acronyms here because they do matter uh, and they do apply. TTM and TCO, those are the big two. Total cost of ownership, so TCO, and TTM, time to market. Those are the two most important uh, qualities that people are, are looking for once they've decided what kind of customers they're going to serve and what kind of platforms are best fitting for their needs. When it comes to the decision point, it comes down to oftentimes those two things. And they're, they're complicated dynamics. It's not an easy answer. You can't just put three companies in a spreadsheet and say, TDM is this and TCO is that. Uh, eventually you get to a number, but it's a qualitative and quantitative calculation. But those are the two most important, uh, I find, things that people are looking for once they've decided what customers they're going to serve and generally what kind of platforms they're interested in. It is how quickly can I get it up and running and what kind of uh, expense is this going to, to be? Now, But what do, what, 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 what do they choose? Because now even this joke in the industry though, even SAP on-prem, which is still in the Gartner uh, uh, quadrant as a leader, very old technology, very hard to uh, uh, install. It comes from the time where you had those multi-million dollar projects on the website saying, best total cost of ownership, best TTM in the market, which is untrue, obviously. Everybody knows it, but how, how, how do you navigate through that then? Because that, everybody's creating such noise. Uh, so if you're leaving the room with a B2B buyer and he's on his own talking with vendors, everybody will say, yeah, when you're looking, you're, you're looking for TT, TCO and TTM, you're at the right, uh, you're at the right vendor right now. No, it's true. Everybody today has a low TCO, a fast TTM, uh, and they're all headless. Oh, and they're all in the cloud. Obviously, yes. And so, uh, you know, we, we joke about this because I started hearing this three, four years ago. I mean, I do these evaluations and everybody was saying the exact same thing. And uh, so what I do is I get behind that. Uh, on the total cost of ownership part, that one actually, for somebody who's more skilled, 
who's been doing this for a while, I have comparables from year to year. I know what people told me their, you know, their average contract value was last year. Plus I talked to their clients and say, Hey, did that match up with what, you know, they're telling me it's about this amount per month, you know, on average, is that what you're paying? So, you know, I double source things. I listen obviously to the vendors. I do a lot of this under NDA. So they have an incentive to tell me the truth. Uh, because they also know part B is I'm going to go talk to the clients as well as other people and ask them what they actually paid. So I compare both sides of the equation. So I get a better sense for total cost of ownership based on that kind of evaluation. Time to market one is more complicated. Wait just a second, but that's only for the license perspective. That doesn't oh. include like the agency cost usually or people working on the project. Still, right. the license well, also... part is a smaller part of the project. Well, that's actually another part of my evaluation is I asked that question, which is a little more difficult. I don't know if we have enough time to go into that, but as you know, in the combine evaluation, I actually asked, what's the contract value? Yes. I also asked, what's the implementation cost? And the implementation cost is difficult. I usually do a multiple of the, of the mm -hmm. license because that to me seems to be the best metric. It's not perfect, but you know, if somebody spends $10,000 a month to run a site and it costs in year one, 20 times that to implement it, then that's not a good ratio. Uh, on the other hand, if it's an expensive piece of software and it doesn't cost much to implement because there's a lot of configuration versus customization built into it, then that's a good thing. Mm. So again, there's no perfect metric here. Uh, when I put together that criteria years ago, I struggled with this one because it's highly variable. You know, I remember in the early days, SAP slash hybris used to push back on this to both, I know, Forrester and Gartner saying, look, we have a more complex customer. They're doing more complex things. Therefore, the absolute cost of implementation is higher. There was truth to that. It was also true that, that Hybris was just more expensive. So I had to kind of weed through all that and figure out mm. what's the true notion here. But, you know, there really are different camps. I mean, there are more premium Uh, implementations and premium software that people are expecting, usually enterprises, to pay that kind of money. And they do so because they want a world-class system to help them compete. They're not as concerned about the price. Then the other end of the spectrum, there are companies, it's the Shopify effect, where they really don't have that kind of resource. They don't have that kind of time. And so they want to get up and running quickly. And for them, that TCO is really critical. But in general, and I say this in general because it does vary, Larger companies aren't as price sensitive. Smaller companies are. Uh, but like I said, that's changed somewhat. Larger companies, because of the Shopify effect, the license prices are coming down. You see a lot of these companies like SAP and Oracle, et cetera, going down into the mid-market. Their prices are going down, not up. And there's a reason for it. Okay, but, but it's still, you would agree that still for a buyer who's usually doing a software project only like once or twice every decade, it's still a very, very hard thing to navigate. So there's, uh, um, there's um, still room for a lot of uh, analysts to grow into that, uh, into that market because it becomes even more complex um, uh, in the future. Yeah, well, and it, it depends on, again, I all roads lead back to the same. What are you trying to do? You know, it could be that you're moving your entire offline. Say you're moving a multi-billion dollar offline business online. Well, A, you can afford to spend more money on a commerce implementation, both platform and partner. And B, 
it might actually be worth your while to do that because you're permanently moving an offline business online that you may actually be able to monetize even more effectively in an online environment, lower cost to serve, better opportunities using advanced technology to personalize experiences, to, to upsell, cross-sell, et cetera. So there can be strong arguments for making an investment, spending a relatively large amount of money on a platform that you plan to be married to for 20 years. Fine. And, and, and to this marriage, this kind of get to know process, there was a very fundamental part, which was conferences before Corona. So conferences were used to meet different vendors, different agencies to get a better understanding. So who's doing what, so how do they behave? Uh, um, and it was a big part of the, uh, um, of the whole industry, finding customer, finding new agencies or SIs for, for vendors. Um, and the whole industry, conference industry kind of died uh, <laughs> last year. So do we expect that there will be big, commerce conferences again in the US or Europe uh, uh, when everybody is vaccinated? Well, when or if are two big questions, but my sense, and I'm not an expert on conferences, but I've run some, been associated with them. We have a whole series that we do digitally called Master B2B, uh, where we've tried to infuse it with a different kind of look and feel as opposed to, we call them unwebinars as opposed to webinars. Like um, unconferences, which comes from the barcamp industry. Right. Well, my, my sense is that when, when the dust settles, conferences, offline conferences will come back, but they will not be the same. We will see, I think, mega conferences like the dream forces of the world, the CESs of the world uh, that will come back because those are events. They're like the World Cup or the Super Bowl here in the States. You know, that, that's something that people look forward to. Mm -hmm. There, there's something about it that's a special um, you know, engagement. So people, mm. those will come back, but they will look different. I'll talk about that in a second. Then I think really small events are going to become more popular where you can have more intimate events. The hardest part about, as you know, acquiring customers in the world of software is not finding leads, but qualifying those leads and actually selling them something. There are billions of people in the world. How do you go from billions to the hundreds or thousands that are actually ever going to buy your software. That whole process has improved greatly. And what I've found is that small intimate events like dinner events um, that can be organized locally still have a lot of value because people want to go and listen. They don't want a hard pressure, turn the screws kind of sales job, either online or offline, but in a small group where they can bounce off each other, sort of disappear into the woodwork, ask a question, not feel like they're pressured. Those work. So to me, it's really large conferences will come back with a different kind of look and feel about them, but people will still go to them. Really small events will become increasingly popular on a local basis, potentially digitally too, smaller events where you can have 10 people on a screen and they can interact with each other. It's the middle ground that I have questions about. What about a 300 to 3,000 person event? It's not large enough to be a mega event and it's too large to have the intimacy of a small offering. And so, you know, my question is what's going to happen to those events? And I have a feeling that it's going to be hit or miss there. Whereas I think smaller events that are very focused are going to do well. And mega events are still going to have a, a cachet about them. Yeah. And the smaller events might uh, my, uh, migrate to uh, hybrid events where there's maybe 100 people left from the 300 that were before 
but 500 to 1000 will attend uh, virtually. Um, so let's stick for uh, a minute as the last part of this podcast um, to your unwebinar. Can you tell the listeners what's different here? Because we, we will participate in this webinar series, I think in early May or so. Uh, there was the first webinar I saw a couple of um, days, maybe a week ago, um, Men versus Machine, was it? Uh, um, uh, moderated by uh, Brian Beck and you. So what's the difference here? So it's a, if you describe it, it's just another webinar. Uh, if you would have to, if you need to describe it jargon free, <laughs> how would you do it? You know, I think it's more like a television show. It's an interactive television show more than it is a webinar. So webinars grew out of audio conference calls. I used to do them years ago. You know, we'd all get on the phone and we'd do, you know, a webinar. Uh, it would be a conference call, essentially, that migrated into a digital environment. They added some video. But for the most part, it, the webinar was about the person describing it would be on audio only. And there would be, there would be slides on the screen. There was no video of a speaker. So it really wasn't a video-centric offering. It was really an audio-centric offering that was augmented by slides. We flipped this idea on its ear. We said, what if this was more like a, a sports talk, radio, TV show, where it moves quickly, we ask hard questions, we pit people against one another so they can argue both sides of it, and then we offer takeaways at each point along the way. What would that look like? And so well, you mentioned, we just did our first on March 30th and we had thousands of people participating in this. We also had a, uh, a LinkedIn page where up to 10,000 people were watching what we were talking about and hundreds of people were participating. We think we struck a chord here, which is, you know, since we all can't physically be in person because of the pandemic, what is a, a viable alternative to that? And what we have found is that people want interactivity, but they want something that's not slow. It's not professorial, like you're watching a college lecture. It's in fact, more like television because who specializes in keep, keeping people uh, glued to a screen for extended periods of time? Television. So that's what we did. And so again, you know, I don't know if this concept exists everywhere. I think it does of like a sports talk show. Uh, and that's what Brian and I do. And we ask the tough questions and we have sponsors. Sprikers is a sponsor as well. But as you know, we don't have any softball questions. We will ask you, as we've asked the other sponsors, the exact same tough questions that we're asking everybody. Because our goal here, our audience is the people who attend. Sponsors pay for this, but you don't get any special treatment. And we like it that way. It's like television. If Amazon um, or you know, an oil company sponsors a show, they're not involved in the editorial content. They're just underwriting the show. That's the way the sponsor is too. We're betting that we're going to get more people who are going to be more engaged, watching and participating in our unwebinars that we will generate more interest for a sponsor than a dedicated traditional webinar that is A, boring, B, self-serving, and C, ineffective in the end. So we're early into this, but we have one data point and it's exceedingly strong. We have seven of these set up. We have a waiting list of other companies who want to get in. And I think what really makes it different is that Brian and I share our authentic, selves 
There's no mystery here. We don't kowtow to sponsors. We don't use a lot of buzz words and jargon. Uh, they're very serious discussions, but they're accessible discussions. I agree. So we did our um, last conference also as a TV show. Uh, we had to actually the opportunity to do it like as, um, uh, as a hybrid TV show where we had like 50 people on stage or in a room and, uh, um, and more than 1,000 people watching, watching it uh, in, in, a, in a full HD stream. But it's, it, it's evolving fastly. So um, um, I really liked how, how, um, how you did it. Uh, I think it, it could be even better with like having the main uh, participants in one room and live streaming it because it's, uh, uh, there's some, uh, but would be way harder to organize <laughs> getting everybody in the same, uh, same room. I agree, but it's, well, a, it's a, yeah, it's all, yeah, we will, is, yeah. this will evolve. Yeah. Uh, but what we've noticed is that we keep it moving. You know, we don't dwell on things. People are asked to answer quickly mm -hmm. and succinctly. And, you know, if they don't answer the question, we come back to them and say, look, you didn't answer this question. We need you to answer this particular question. So it's not possible to just get on there and talk and fill time. It moves too quickly. You have three minute, seven minute, like 10 minute rounds where, you know, we talk about an issue for a period of time. There's a clock associated with it. You got to answer quickly yeah. uh, because we're all busy. And frankly, attention spans are pretty short. So we wanted to get to the heart of the issue. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Yeah, I, it's pretty good. It's, it's, it's not like TikTok. We have like three seconds to sell a topic and then five, five, five seconds to explain and two seconds for call to action. But it's, it's a bit more, a bit more for, uh, for, for our generation. But I, re I really like it. I'm really looking forward to participate. Uh, I think that's the way um, it goes. And I, I think it has great potential to, um, to morph into a hybrid. Uh, format whenever vaccination <laughs> is uh, uh, um, is done. Um, Andy, thank you for your time. Uh, uh, I really learned a lot um, uh, again. Uh, the B2B market is very special, so we did, didn't. Uh, I think we can do like another uh, podcast on B2B requirements uh, spe specifically. Uh, but I think it was a very good foundation uh, for the most listeners. Looking forward for our um, our own un webinar. Uh, and right now you're, I think, in the middle of the uh, B2B paradigm uh, um, scoring thing. So uh, there's a new, uh, a new a new scorecard coming out, I think, in August or so. I kind well, of actually, sooner than that. Uh, yeah. At the latest, early June, probably early June. more like late May. So yeah. we're less than two months away. So stay tuned. Cool. Thank you.